great to uh, to get to actually come uh, two weeks in a row and spend time with you. And this morning, the topic is the inerrancy of Scripture. I've been thinking about this for three months, thinking how how can we speak about this in a Sunday morning with very limited time, but such an important topic, one that every single follower of Jesus Christ has to make up in their own mind, where am I on this issue? Is the Bible perfect, fully trustworthy, and without error in everything that it says and teaches? Or are there some mistakes, even tiny little ones? What is the case for this? So we're going to spend some time on this this morning. And I want to say that uh, if you have grown up in the church or you have committed your life to Christ, a while ago, this might be something you've heard of before. What I hope to do is strengthen you and encourage you. And you might be here today and you're like, I don't know, I've never even heard about this before, or my background is Catholic, or my background is United Church, and I've never heard about this. Awesome. I am really excited that you're here. And what I'd like to do, I'd like to be able to make this case, and I want to encourage you in your bulletins. You've got a two-sided piece of paper here. And this is a nearly exhaustive list on scripture verses that talk about this issue. And I hope to encourage you that you'll go home and grab a Bible. If you don't have one yet, uh, please talk to me after. We'll get one today to you. And I, I hope that you'll go through this list and, again, make up for yourself in your own mind. Does the Bible teach this or not? All right? So first of all, let me see if this works. Aim it there. Okay. okay, Jason's going to help me out on that. Um, there are two foundational things. Oh, right. Short, short-term memory. Okay, I think I'm going to rely on my brother to uh, to carry us through. So, going to the first slide here. There's a couple foundational things I have to say before I say anything else today. First of all. When we say that the Bible is inerrant, what we mean is that in the original text that is called, often called the autographs, that is the letters and the books that were written by John, by Paul, by Peter, by Isaiah, we say that in the original, as the men were inspired by God and carried along by the Holy Spirit, that God superintended the writing of Scripture so that it was reported without error. Because if God cannot lie, God would not inspire errors. So that is in the original, which you might then ask me, okay, Nick, where's the originals? We don't have any. You might say, okay, that's, a, that's actually a huge problem there. That's why I want to let you know about this. This is a field of study called textual criticism. Textual criticism takes manuscripts and copies of originals and picture laying out all the copies of original that you have on a table and looking and comparing one with another. For example, if you have 10 copies of an original and eight of them do not have a comma there and two of them have a comma, is it more likely that eight people forgot to put in the comma or is it more likely that two people actually added one that should be there? And you can figure out odds are that comma is not supposed to be there in the original, probably did not have that. The more different texts that you have to lay out on the table, they're actually two things. The more variance you have as you're comparing these documents, but the greater ability you have to bring them all together and figure out what the original said. 
Now, when it comes to the New Testament alone, we have about 5,800 manuscripts. And that ranges from everything from this little small size of a credit card to full books containing every single one in the Bible. When we compare all of these together, we have the ability to reconstruct what the original is. And this is a really neat way that God chose to use to actually preserve the original. I'll speak to that in a sec, but just as an illustration. So you've got an original, say four people copy that together, right? Four copies. So next slide, the first person gets a mistake. So original is gone, we take the four, we want to put these four together, figure out what the original was. So the first one, uh, if you click the slide, so there's a mistake. See on the third word there? There's a mistake there. Next copy, copy number two, also has a mistake. See where that one is. God is just, mistake there. Copy number three has a mistake, it's right there. Copy number four has a mistake right there. With this here, can we reconstruct the original? Now, if we only had one copy, it could be quite hard. We have four copies, and the next slide, yes, we can. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the beautiful thing about the way God chose to do this, for example, if I have an original, so say this is the original, and I pass it around, and all of you this morning get to copy it down. What are the odds, despite maybe a few spelling mistakes, uh, maybe somebody didn't bring their glasses today, and it looks a little fuzzy, and that, what are the odds that what you copy here this morning are going to be very, very, very close to what this original is? It's going to be really close. This is first-generation copy happening here. Now, if you compare all of your translate or your copies to mine, and mine is different, from all of yours here, what are you going to say? Thank you, heretic. You changed your copy. Why did you do that? With all those copies, you have an ability to see has the original been modified or not. So by not preserving the original, but allowing this these copies to go viral is actually a really incredible way to preserve the writings, the words of the original. And that's how it worked with the scriptures. Ephesians is written, and then it just goes viral through Turkey. Laodicea is making copies. In, uh, when Colossians go out, uh, all the, the different cities around, they're saying, do you have a copy of that? They're grabbing it, they're making it, and it's spreading out. Same thing in northern Greece and Macedonia. The letter of the Philippians is spreading out, leaving us between 5,000 and 800. So what you have in your books there represents what the autographs the second thing I want to say is who here speaks, reads, studies in ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek? So if you're obviously like me, we don't. And someone might say, you are banking so much trust in this book, you don't even read the original languages. As if that is a, a, a significant source of error that maybe you don't even know what the originals say. Well, in 2016, I was, I was in Jerusalem, and I was on this, uh, this walk called Meet the Ultra-Orthodox, where this Jewish lady would bring us through uh, different cool parts of Jerusalem and tell us about their beliefs, and uh, it was super fun. And I, I'm, like, hanging out with her as much as I can in the tour, and I'm asking her questions. Well, what, what do you think about this text and that text? And are you aware of this and that? And at one point, she said, you speak Hebrew. You read Hebrew. And I said, no, I don't. She said, oh, oh, well. You know, like, why are we even having this conversation? And 
what hit me afterwards, I wish it had hit me at the moment, was, good good point, I, I don't read Hebrew, I don't read Greek, but I read English. And these translations, the, uh, the ESV was translated by over 100 evangelical scholars that are experts. They just immerse and saturate their lives in the ancient languages. The NLT, New Living Translation, over 90 evangelical scholars worked on that one. And so what happens, just to bring this all together, the textual critics lay out all 5,800 manuscripts. They compare, they compare, they compare, they say, okay, the original, let's do an original package in Hebrew and in Greek, and those become the source texts that take into account all the different little comparisons, and there's say for Greek, a couple versions, the United Bible Society has a text, Greek text, uh, Bethel and Allen have a Greek text, and then the translating committee, like these other people, then flip that Greek text into a language that they want. Flip it into Greek, flip it into French, flip it into English. So when you pick up your Bible, in this case most likely in English, although you do not speak Greek, you are able to read and understand So those two things is that you hold the original autograph, the contents of the original autograph, and then okay. So that said, Second Timothy chapter three verse sixteen. It's not there. Please flip over there. And I'm going to this morning work through that uh, handout sheet that you have. Um, some I'm just going to point out. I wish we could turn to every text. We don't have time. But as I work through these ones, there's just a few that are up here. So if you forget where it is, you'll be able to find the reference there. And I just want to spend a little bit of time um, focusing on what's written there. So, so flip with me if you can to those there. So um, first one, 2 Timothy 3.16. So Paul writes this, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is God breathed. And how much? All of it. All scripture is God breathed. This is the that doctrine of inspiration. God working through people to give us the words to have for us. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Those guys living and active. 2 Timothy 3.15. This is what Paul says to Timothy. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. These, these words are able to make you wise for salvation so that you can actually come to the Lord and have new life in Him. John 17, 17, Jesus says, regarding the scriptures of God, He says, Your word is truth. In 2 Timothy 2, 15, we're told to rightly handle the word of truth. David prays in 2 Samuel, O oh God, Your words are truth. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God, every, every word of God is truth. 
John 10, 35, Jesus said, this is scripture, and I'll quote from the prophets of God, Jesus said, the sum of your word is truth, Psalm 119 says. Psalm 119 also says, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Now, flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1. And as you do, I'll just mention Romans 15, where um, Paul says, For whatever was written in former days, in that case, that time, speaking of the Old Testament, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. It happened in the past, it was recorded in the past, and it was for them then, which is true for you today, now. Back then, God inspired it to be written for you to have it, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, what you might have hope. So Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, it says, No prophecy, this is Peter talking, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man. But here's the main point. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So no prophet, Ezekiel didn't say, I got an idea. I think it's a good idea and I'm going to write it down. But rather, Ezekiel and other men like him spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is talking about inspiration. First uh, Peter chapter 1 says a similar thing where the prophets, they were they were prophesying about the Messiah, but they didn't even understand. They're, they're talking about somebody who would come, who would suffer, who would be executed, who would be put in the grave of a rich man, and somehow he's alive again, and they're like, how does that work? They didn't know what God was going to do in the person who was speaking up. And yet, God was working through them to inspire that when it would happen, God would work through the fact that it was The New Testament apostles wrote scripture. John chapter 14, um, this is a text to be familiar with. We ought to talk about this actually for ourselves, and it might have placed secondary application, but it's not the primary. This one here, where Jesus says to the apostles, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, is that a familiar text? Yes, I've heard quite often before. The Holy Spirit will come. He's going to teach you all things, and he'll bring to your mind everything that I have said to you. Now, think of the original audience who read this. is the apostles. The apostles, although they already got to have Three years with the king, living with the Messiah, they are told that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will come upon them at some point in the future, and then he will actually bring to their mind everything that Jesus has taught them, and that he will teach them all things. This is qualifying them to be able to write what they did, like the Gospel of Matthew. The primary application is the ability of these men no longer just write like their grocery list that they would have done that week, but to actually write something far different by, on, by the mission of God to accomplish this, that every generation, like you here today, would have God through your original Uh Flip over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 
chapter 1. I love this verse that for, for some who may not have seen this before, I, I hope it's just like, oh, wow, this is, look at this new thing. So, Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 to 12. Paul says, writing to the Galatians who are pretty much new believers in Turkey, and he says this, The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not human ideas. He says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. It, it, he, although he was a Pharisee, there was not other Pharisees and other rabbis above him that he took a seminar and they said, look at this, well, that's a good idea, I'll pass it on. No, I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ, the carpenter who walked, taught, who made claims that, that heaven and earth will, will fade away, but his words will never fade away, who was executed and seen alive one time by 500 people in one shot, he claimed that that risen Messiah told him directly what God is. So when you read in Romans, say Romans chapter 5, 1, uh, therefore we are justified by faith in Christ our Lord. That's the peace of God now through him. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, gave that to Paul, and he gave that to me. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to see a pattern here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Here, Paul says, Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which, of course, it is. Let me read that one more time. He's talking to these believers in Greece, and he says, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which, of course, it is. So you see, Paul believes that as they were preaching, they were preaching God's word like Moses did, and that the Thessalonians in Greece that received it, they didn't receive it like, oh, Paul's got some good ideas. They received it like something unique and special was happening in that era through that man that was different from First um, Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says that whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. Uh, chapter 4, he also says, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Galatians 1, Paul, not an apostle, not by men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. That, that he's writing to their believers. He's writing to them. Skipping down a little bit here, take your time. Acts chapter 4. Let's go to Acts chapter 4, verse 24 to 27. This is a really cool chapter. The apostles have been arrested and 
beaten by the authorities, told, stop teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. It is not to go well for you. And they go and they meet with the believers, and they're gathered, and they're scared, and they do what you have to do at a home like that. Pray. They get on their knees, and they say, oh, sovereign God, hear what the leader said. Protect us. God, get us through this. Help us be bold. Help us not back down. And then one of the things that they say in this, in Acts chapter 4, verse 24 to 25, look at what they say and what their understanding is of the Scripture. They say, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit in the book of Psalms about you. So they're saying that God spoke through the mouth of a man, of David, King David, but he spoke through the mouth of David, God's servant, and he was said by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through David, giving us Psalms about Jesus. And the last one I'm going to point out in your list here is Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. So flip to it if you like, Matthew 5, verse 18. And this is a verse that different translations have translated in a different way, and so I've got three of them stacked here, so they're, they're pretty neat. So if you're familiar with one, you'll hear it. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. So Jesus says, and this is a very strong claim. Now, if Jesus is God in flesh, God among us, as Emmanuel is, then this makes sense. If Jesus is just a good man, or just a prophet, this is witnessing to vulgarity. He should not be crossing the line in what he's saying. Alright, so he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, according to ESV, or not the smallest letter or stroke, according to NASB, not a jot or a tittle, according to the King James, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. So regarding this, if Jesus believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Scripture is perfect, Jesus believes in every jot and tittle of theology. All of it is how Jesus sees it. So if he were to say 2,000 years later, oh, I don't think, I think there's some errors. Well, if Jesus thinks there's none, how are we so much smarter 2,000 years later? Um, that's a dangerous position to take. Now, that said, uh, please flip over to 1 Corinthians 6, just to be ready for down the road here. This is the topic of inerrancy. I feel from, from this study that it is necessary to examine the text, decide where you stand, and it is important that if a Christian says there are errors in the Bible. From what I have seen in my own life so far, any Christian that I have has told me, Nick, it, it's, there's errors. It's not perfect. They were on their way out. And unfortunately, they kept going and they left the faith. The same, uh, my best friend in university uh, loved the Word of God, uh, loved Jesus Christ. I remember the time he said, Nick, Nick, it's not perfect. What? Where did that come from? Soon after he's dating somebody that has no relationship with Jesus, he doesn't care. Soon after that, Nick, there's things in the Old Testament I just can't handle. Things like the battle at Jericho. Soon after, but I'm still cool with Jesus. And soon after, 
Nick, I've left that behind. Please do give it to your children for other people that do not know you. And I've seen this pattern in many. And you might say, yeah, well, I've, I, you know, maybe I don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, or I have people in my life that don't believe in it, and they're doing fine. I, again, I, I, I want to counsel you here. You may not notice it yet, but if the Scriptures say, if God has said, every word of God is true, and you say, no, that's not true, you're in dangerous ground. I say that to you as an individual Christian, and I say that to you as your church and your denomination. If your church does not make a clear um, decision on where they land on the inerrancy of Scripture, the church is already on its way out. You may not have many generations left. And if your denomination says, we have decided we no longer believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, again, Christians, you have to stand strong. You have to make sure that your leaders are strong, encourage them, and if at any point in the future, you have to walk away to stand strong. You're God, not man. It's so important. I want to give you two case studies right now. One, where where Christians let go. They let go of it. They said, it's fine. It doesn't matter. They let go of it where they are today. And I want to give you an example, I believe, where this is what a case study where in the face of pressure to, to let go, these other ones didn't. So for the first one, I want to tell you a little bit about John Knox. So if we could flip over the slide, John Knox. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Uh, really cool guy. Uh, maybe one day I'll do a sermon on him. Uh, in the 1500s, you would die for your theology. Like, it, church and state were locked together. If you don't believe what the, the power, the people holding power believe, then they will use the power of the state to take you out. So, crazy time. The Reformation is on. You have people who were Catholic who are saying, Guys, we're off. We're wrong. We got to go back. And you have other people. It, it, it starts in house, and they're saying, "What are you talking about? Things can evolve." Um, and in those days, where you would die for your theology, uh, there was a theologian called George Wishart, and he's going around. He's preaching in Scotland, and John Knox was his bodyguard for a while. He would carry around a two-handed broadsword to let people know, "I trust George. He's not trying to hurt me." He was a controversial figure. Uh, at one point, he gets uh, gets arrested and ends up as a slave on a galley ship. Those ships where everybody's rowing all day long. He spends 19 months, two years, as a slave on a galley ship. One day, they're they're paddling their, the ship there uh, on the coast of Scotland, and he sees the steeple of the church he once preached, and he says, one day I will come back before I die. I will preach one more time in that church. He ends up as a refugee in Geneva, preaching in the church of John Calvin. And one day his people say, come back. We need you in Scotland. He goes back. Uh, incredible guy. And this guy, his writings, they're, they're strong and they're solid. And he's one of those guys who believes, you know, hard words make soft hearts and soft words make hard hearts. And he was fiery preacher. So that said, if you and I were to start a new church and we're going to another location, we're going to make a church, and we say, okay, well, what do we name our church? We would all talk. Maybe we'd probably talk about our local heroes, and maybe uh, I love Charles Spurgeon, or maybe I'd, I'd be bored, and let's call it Spurgeon Chapel. Or, you know, or maybe years in the future, someone loves John Piper, uh, Piper Baptist Church. So you, what, what you choose as a name represents who you're passionate about. So if you said, or if a team, a leadership team said, let's name our church Knox, John Knox, 
that says something like, you know, like the Bible matters and for the glory of God, may this church be full of people that, that discover Jesus Christ and have a whole new life in him. So that said, if you can flip to the next slide here, and I say this in love as a Christian talking about my brothers and sisters, there's a church in Calgary called Knox Church. Um, a lot of United Churches uh, will have like a, a rainbow flag or what have you, and Knox doesn't. And I'm driving by one day, and I, I saw it, and I thought, Knox. And I think about John Knox, and there's no rainbow flag. And I thought, I know most United Churches have gone very, very left, uh, especially on, on certain issues like LGBT, but maybe they haven't. And so I went on the website, and I thought, maybe they, they, they held out. And then I saw, like, well, their logo is, is that today, green, orange, and rainbow. And I go through the website, and I can't find the name Jesus on any page of the website anywhere. I go through the whole thing. I finally find it one time, and it's under their page. I said that they're, they're LGBT, and they're supporting Jesus, and they're like, this is your commandment, blah, blah, blah. Everywhere else on that website, there's, there's nothing. There's a, there's a course on crystal bowl meditation, uh, bring your own yoga mat. There's, um, there's so much, like, the desire to embrace people, right? And that's good. I, I think we all believe on that in here. The desire to love your neighbor, that's fantastic. However, to the expense of changing the word of God, saying that mattered then, that no longer matters now, that is dangerous. And I don't believe that it's the current leadership of the church that said, hey guys, let's just go over here. I believe that there was a change that happened between naming their church John Knox in the 1800s and today having many saying we will be known by the logo of a unicorn and a rainbow flag. The change that happened in between was that the United Church decided over a slow progression in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, we are going to let go of that old, silly doctrine of inerrancy. The Bible is not closed. It's actually open. Jesus is not the only way, not the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. He's just one of them. And who are we to say any different from that? And that slow, gradual transition, they've been. Charles Spurgeon said it best, actually. Let me read you this quote here. He said, one error must lead to another. You never need doubt that. If you tamper with one truth of Scripture, he that tempts you to meddle with one will tempt you to tamper with another, and there will be no end to it. Till at last, you will want a new Bible, a new Testament, and a new God. There is no telling where you will end when you have begun. So please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I just want to sh briefly touch on this. So there are people who will say um, the LGBT issue is uh, it's, it's an Old Testament thing. We're a New Testament. We're a New Covenant. And they, they forget and they ignore. Well, it's, this is clear New Testament teaching. Uh, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy as well speak to this. And the reason we've got to come to the Bible is that it's so, so good. This has to be heard. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. So follow me, follow with me. Or 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If we stopped just there, that says a lot, right? But it doesn't stop there. Check out the next verse. I want you to see it in, in the Bible. Verse 11. And such were some of you. This list here, Paul is saying, and Paul was, a, he was murdering, murdering Christians, and he had a whole radical new way of life. And he's talking to these Corinthians. And Corinth, first century Corinth, was anything goes. It would make Las Vegas look like a convent. Like, it was a wild, wild city. Uh, one of the issues going on in, in the letters here, one guy's sleeping with his stepmom, and people are like, you know, we're very progressive. You know, good for you. And he's like, guys, no, no, no. You don't sleep with your stepmom. That's off. That's wrong. This is Corinth. And he's saying to the Corinthians, this list, as such were some of you. There would have been people who had same-sex attractiveness, and then they discovered this new life in Jesus Christ. And, and the verse goes on. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the gospel. I would love it if this church was full of, of folks that are LGBT in the Bow Valley, that they would be invited in that they would say, you know what, I may not agree with them on everything, but the most accepting people I have ever met are Christians. That would be amazing. And that they would, in a relationship with Jesus Christ and in, in reading the scriptures, that God would work on them and realize that, that through repentance, everything can change. God can give you a fresh new start, a fresh clean slate, a fresh new way of life, that he puts his spirit in you, changes your heart, and then we walk through this life together as disciples of Jesus Christ, continually submitting to him as he works and changes us so that we can love and reach our world. So do you see that in 1 Corinthians 6 there? It's called out. The liberal churches have stopped doing that. As a result, they don't get to hear the gospel, that new life with Jesus Christ. That's when we have to shout from the rooftops. Right, so I want to give you an example now of those that have stayed strong. So next slide, please. In 1978, um, really cool thing called the Chicago Conference on Biblical Inerrancy. Um, pastors and theologians realizing that their fellow churches, their fellow neighbors were letting go of the Bible and saying it doesn't matter anymore. They said, you know what we should do? Let's have a conference. Let's get together and let's work out what we mean by inerrancy. Uh, what, what is a hill to die on? What is one that's not? Let's articulate this. Let's write it down in a document that will be useful for Christians everywhere, and then let's sign it and say, this is where we stand. So this document, uh, I have emailed Pastor Greg. So at the end of this, if you like this, please email Pastor Greg, say, can you flip it over to me? Uh, a short PDF, and it's, got, it's really neat. It's got these, um, we believe in this, or we affirm this, we deny this. We affirm this, we deny this. And that's got a good list of things saying, these things here, don't, we, don't, we won't die on a hill for. And I want to go through those here for you today. Um, some of the people that were there, uh, J.I. Packer, 
there was a young man just starting his career. John MacArthur was there. Uh, Wayne Grudem, one of, one of my heroes, was there. Uh, D.A. Carson was there. Uh, Moshe Rosen, the founder of Jews for Jesus, was there. And um, so really awesome document. One of, uh, just as a sample, one of the things they talked about, they said, this is a short statement they made. Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. And it is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Now regarding some of the things that they pointed out, and they say, by inerrancy, we don't mean this. So these are some of the things, right? Lack of modern technical precision. So they say, you, if there's a lack of modern technical precision in the Bible, you don't have to fight for that. So example, Matthew 13. Jesus, in demonstrating and teaching a parable, he picks up a mustard seed and he says, you see this mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And someone today go, ah, uh, well, in Guatemala, there's a seed that you don't even know it's there, unless you put it under a microscope. But no, 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 you don't. That's not what the point. That's not what Jesus is doing here. It's a parable. And he's saying to the audience that he has, he's not making a botanical statement of fact. He's saying, look how small this is. And yet planted in the ground, the tree that comes of it, the kingdom of God is like that. It starts small, the believer in this world, and it can't stop. It grows and grows and grows. That's what's going on there. Another one they say is irregularities of grammar or spelling. So if there are uh, different ways of spelling, different ways of using grammar, someone might go, oh, look, look, that's an error. There's a Bible error. And we say, hey, we'll give that to you. No, that's not an error. We don't have to defend that. Um, that's a very modern thing for you and me to say, you have a typo. You know, you misspelled that. Uh, when you look at older texts, the same author writing the same story will spell something two or three different ways as they go. Uh, it, it was, I think, in the 1800s, the dictionaries came out. And even today, I mean, is labor spelt with O-U-R or O-R? Is color spelt O-U-R or R? Uh, when I'm writing in my Bible, my Bible's written by Americans. I'm writing it out to memorize a verse. I, I got to put a U in there under labor. I just wrecked the Bible. Like, no, like that, we don't fight for irregularities of grammar or spelling. Observational descriptions of nature. Psalm 113 says the sun comes up and the sun goes down. Now, what do we know today? Well, we know today, right, the sun is actually fixed. The sun doesn't go anywhere. We rotate on a 24-hour basis. and But it creates for us on Earth, we don't see the planet rotating. We see what looks like the sun going up and the sun going down. Imagine if God back then, to try to communicate a message, said, uh, every day, O oh Lord, as the planet spins for six hours, I worship you. Like, it would, it would be super confusing. That So for the sake of communicating a message to people that was to be understandable for the moment, um, these observational descriptions of things uh, are not there. Uh, the reporting of falsehoods. So do you guys remember when Abraham in Genesis, he's in a particular area that's a little bit sketchy. He thinks he's going to get killed, doesn't trust the people there. And what does he say to his wife, Sarah? 
me say you're my sister. Don't say you're my wife. If you're my wife, they'll kill me and take you. If you're my sister, well, they'll kind of brown nose me and they'll, you know, give me a bunch of stuff and we'll be okay. We'll be safe. So that, was that true? No, it was, it was a lie. Abraham is, is reflecting his nature that we have too. He was lying. That was deception. And people say, well, look, in your Bible, there's a lie. And again, we say, no, that it's reporting a falsehood. It's truthfully telling what happened. But no, we don't have to fight to say, no, Abraham was actually kind of related. No, it wasn't actually. Uh, the, the use of hyperbole or hyperbole and round numbers, exaggerations. So when David and Saul are, are kind of competing against each other, do you remember what the women of Jerusalem, they shout out and they say, Saul kills his thousand and David his ten thousand. Now someone might say, well, we did the math and the battles and the statistics and stuff. And we say, no, the thousand and the ten thousand is really an exaggeration to show Saul, you're here, and David, you are here. You're the real thing. The topical arrangement of material. Uh, when you go through the Gospels, some people will say, oh, hang on. You know, this event took place here, and then this other Gospel writer, that event took place after this stage. That's an error. And again, no. The, the, the purpose behind the author on what they were doing, the topical arrangement, John is huge on that. When you read the Gospel of John, uh, the whole gospel is, is around these significant miracles. And he even names off. He even says that was the first, that was the second, that was the third. There's purpose behind what they are doing. A variant selections of material in parallel accounts. If two of you see something happen, and I'm not here, and I come back, and I say, Lee, what, what did you see? And you give me your story. And I, I record it, I write it down. I say, Phil, what did you see? You give me your story, and I write it down. If these are so identical, so matched, that there's not a single little different variant in them, what do I think? You guys talk to each other beforehand. You guys harmonize your story, and the quality of your testimony is not very strong anymore. Now, if instead the central core facts are the same on both of you guys, I know you were both there, you both saw it. But from a different angle, with different perspectives, I should expect a little bit of variation, and that little bit of variation actually tells me that those are truthful statements you've given. Same thing with the gospel, same thing with the scriptures. Lastly, the use of free citations. It is a modern invention to quote with quote marks and to quote verbatim. We have recorders today, we have videos, we go back and we can say, that's not what he said, he said this, you, can be, you missed it a little bit. Back in the day, it wasn't like that. You would know a text well, you would refer to that text and that was accepted that if you had the gist of that quote, so if someone were to say in the New Testament they quoted that, but in the Old Testament it's actually this, and it's a little bit off, that's an error. Again, we don't waste breath on that one. That, that, that's a common thing that the verbatim quotes of the modern function does not, we, we should not superimpose on these guys in the past. All right, so that's just a, a few things, a few lists. Again, if you'd like to look into this deeper, I, I encourage you to. It's a great document. Uh, check it out. Ask Greg, and you'll get my, my highlighted and noted version that might be useful useful to you. So to finish off here, if you come to the last slide, uh, in any topic like this, it's nice to have an anchor verse, the one where if you forget everything else but you remember one, that anchor that hooks onto you, well for me it's this, it's Proverbs 30 verse 5. And the way I see it is that this verse, it, it, it's 50-50, it's one or the other, right? It, it's black or white. 
every word of God proves true or it doesn't or there's mistakes. And so this statement, is it true or is this statement false and therefore it's not inerrant? So again, I would, I would ask you, please uh, study this, search the scriptures, find out it for yourself. Is this statement true? And if it is, that radically changes the entire way you read the Bible, the way you live, the way you relate to God, the way you relate to your neighbors, and, and for the better. And I want to read you this quote. This is, uh, this is from Josephus. Uh, he was a, a Jewish man in the first century. And he's talking about his Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Listen to how he describes them. He says, How firmly we have given credit to those books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as to either to add anything to them, to take anything from them, or to make any change in them. But it becomes natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem those books to contain, contain divine doctrines and to persist in them and, if occasion be, willingly die for them. So may God help us have that same heart. So I'm going to wrap it up there. If you guys would stand, let me pray for you. And then uh, next door, there's going to be coffee and treats. Please hang out and, and have a, a good time visiting. All right? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for the opportunity this morning, God, to, to gather together safely here in Banff, Lord, to be able to have fellowship as brothers and sisters, Lord, as, as a family. And uh, God, we thank you for our visitors here today. God bless them. and on their journeys home as well. And God, thank you for making it so clear in your word, Lord, that it is truth. And you have given us a book to live by. And you have placed the same spirit that inspired it in us, Lord, so that we can know you, so you can transform us, so that you can one day, Lord, get us safely home, safe and sound. God, we love you. God, we throw ourselves on you. We ask God to guide us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. God bless